Hey guys, Bear Grylls here just to say super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember above all, never give up. Now I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. 50 years ago, man went to the moon in one of the greatest adventures ever known. Space is still the final frontier. And in honor of that anniversary, I sat down with NASA astronaut Mike Massimino to discuss his career and exploration beyond this world. Check it out. Mike Massimino, thanks so much for being here. How are you doing? Pleasure, Charles. Thanks for having me. We're coming upon the Apollo anniversary, mm-hmm. and you have a special connection with that, right? You saw that as a child. And yeah, that was... I, was, I can remember it as a kid. It was one of the first things I really remember. I was six years old, um, but I, I remember the lead up to it, and and I, I, I idolized those men. I, I, I thought that that's, uh, that's what I wanted to be like when I grew up you know they they seemed heroic and brave and cool and and they were doing something really important and uh, the uh, the moon the the whole mission going to the moon I thought was the most important thing uh, that we were doing uh, at that time and the most important thing that ever happened in my lifetime and I thought all this when I was a, a little boy it, it really took hold of me and how did you pursue that tell us a little bit about the path to becoming an astronaut I saw it as two paths. One, I could try to uh, go into the military and do that that route, but I didn't think that was a good route for me. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I can go more the academic route because there were academic related, you know, people, engineers and scientists doing that. But I knew I needed, I felt I needed more education and some experience in that direction. And um, I did never think that I could ever become an astronaut. Still can't believe that actually happened. But I thought <laughs> at least that I could work in the space program. So. I went to. I left my job after two years and uh, went into grad school, and that's when I started getting what I thought was the the right background that would help me in things that I was still interested in. I I studied in mechanical engineering and human factors and robotics, and but there was space related application of that, and that's what I did in, in graduate school. And, and once you get once you put yourself in that sort of community, like and I was up at MIT, so. Going to MIT is like if you want to be an actor, I guess you maybe you come to Broadway or you go to Hollywood. You know, there's certain places where you go right. where you're going to be around other people with those interests. And I think that that's helpful. You're in that community. I applied twice while I was in grad school and was rejected. I applied, and I was working at the Johnson Space Center after grad school. Applied a third time, got an interview, and then got rejected. I had a medical problem that I, it was a vision issue that I had to overcome, and I was able to do that. Um, but these are all just stepping stones to getting there. And uh, I was thinking about this. Like the, I went through a lot. Like when I got rejected those those first two times, it was just a, the third time was a medical disqualification. And 
back they just didn't accept um now they accept like lasik and and you know, your vision could be pretty bad right now actually i think and, <laughs> and as long as you're correctable at 2020 but back then you you had to be able to see pretty well uncorrected and they didn't accept any fixes and they they, they dequeued me but i went through some vision training and trained my eyeballs to see a little bit better for the eye test and i was able to pass and i was thinking to myself you know if, if i was an employer looking for an employee and they were willing to go through all this Absolutely. I think that it's pretty mean because you know you really want the job. And, and I think it also shows that once you get that job, I think maybe there's, there's times where once I, once I was selected, I applied a fourth time and passed the medical and got picked. And um, once I got in, um, you know, it's great. But then the work, you know, your reward is work. Mm. And uh, the astronaut job at, at, its, at its true level is really just a lot of work. And there's some sacrifice to it. There's some travel. There's late nights in the simulator. There's mission control center stuff in the middle of the night where you'd rather be home, missing holidays with the family because you have something to do. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff that it's kind of like, ah, okay, this isn't the greatest thing necessarily, but um, but you you do that because you love what you're doing, and those are the same things that got you to your goal. And so I think sometimes I've observed too, and sometimes I'm afraid I have this tendency as well as to relax. Mm. Okay, I've made it. It's time to relax. And that's that's death. You can't let that happen, I think. And so I think a lot of times those trials that get us to wherever it is we're trying to go, those are the, that's that same attitude that is required to be successful once you get there. Because if you all of a sudden adapt a different attitude after going through wherever it is to get to where you are, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, I want that guy that's teaching his eyes to see better than right. the guy that was born with perfect vision, yeah, going exactly. back to that point that you said yeah. before. And it sounds like it is a lot of work before you even get out there. Yeah. The, the work of the simulators, obviously, I've seen that. I've done the zero-G flights. You know, oh, I've cool. felt that yeah. sensation. Is there yeah. anything you can do in that training level that prepares you for actually being out in space? How does that compare? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the, the training is great uh, for, for spacewalk training, for example. Um, the way I used to... Can you describe that, spacewalk for people? Yeah, so some... spacewalk is spacewalk for in the shuttle era and now in this... It's different than when you're... The, like the moonwalkers are actually on a, on a planet... On a planetary... It was on the moon walking around. So that's really like a... That was a moonwalk. Right. But we even call a spacewalk when you're in zero gravity. You're not really walking, but we call it... A you're space. out there in you, space. Your legs don't do you very much good. You can't... Because <laughs> you're... They do. You can anchor them in a foot restraint. You can for try, stability. but there's zero resistance. No, they just can. You just can. They're not going to help you. A lot of times, you purposely keep your legs together as you're moving around with your hands, so your legs don't cause trouble. So, but so it's not really walking, but you're moving around, usually under your own uh, uh, locomotion with your hands, using handrails and other things to move around, or you're you're in a foot restraint attached to the robot arm being moved around with to do different things and you're in a spacesuit outside the spaceship in zero gravity in the vacuum of space doing something in my case it was working on the Hubble Space Telescope so to practice that we would practice underwater in the neutral buoyancy laboratory which is um, a really big pool that we have at the Johnson Space Center 100 feet wide 200 feet long and 40 feet deep largest pool in the world in Houston in Houston Texas yep uh, and uh we would practice from start to finish our spacewalks underwater with those with mock-ups. And um, I used to think of it like, well, I'm going to be asked to play in the World Series or the Super Bowl without ever being on the field. You know, that's what it's like. Because, you know, you get to space and you have to perform at the highest level that you're able to 
without ever, you know, again, hey, let's let's try this out for a while and get used. It's like, no, you got to go out there and do it. So right. you have to try to replicate that and get ready on Earth. And they, they do a wonderful job of getting you ready. I remember my very first spacewalk, toward the end of the spacewalk, our last task was to replace a reaction wheel. Um, it's a, a fairly large wheel, about a few feet in, in uh, diameter. Around. And this was on the Hubble? This was on the Hubble. And... Uh, we had a, I, it was mainly me doing this. I remember I was on a robot arm. I had to open up the door, uh, remove the old one, hand the old one off, get a new one, put that new reaction wheel in, and you know, connect it. It's a fairly simple thing, actually, and then close the door. And uh, I remember as I was closing the door, the thought went through my mind you've never been to Hubble before. This is your first space. Well, I never saw the telescope ever because it launched well before my time. It launched in 1990 before I was an astronaut. I'd never been there before, but I felt like I had done that a hundred times. Wow. I could close the door and seal it up, and uh, yeah, no problem. I know we're good. And then, but then I could turn my head and look and see <laughs> see the planet or the stars, or whatever. That, and there's nothing that can prepare you for that. Yeah, so that was that's the major difference. Of course, is the the environment you're in is much different when you're up there. Yeah, it's there's just no way to simulate that. Your arms are automated right through that training, but also, yeah, I mean, you're mentioning that psychology, mm-hmm. and I think that's what fascinates us most. Obviously, we're you know the human species. We like to consider ourselves explorers and curious, mm-hmm. and 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 practicing empathy and all these sort of things. So when it comes to space, uh, you know, mm-hmm. being out in space, we try to put ourselves in those shoes, yeah. and what the psychology of that would feel like. So yeah. how did that feel looking at earth that first time the um the very first time was it's what you want to do as soon as you get to space so i unstrapped i was on the mid deck on the space shuttle we had two decks we had a flight deck where the windows were and then we had the mid deck where you were looking at lockers and three of us were down there for launch four crew members up up top and i was on the mid deck but unstrapped and went up to the window and looked at the planet and it was uh, it was beautiful yeah, it really is um but you know you're kind of inside still I felt like for some, I didn't, I don't think I realized that until I went for my spacewalk, mm-hmm. but going outside for the spacewalk, it's kind of like, uh, the, I would describe it as maybe looking at the, the fish in an aquarium. Oh, look at the pretty fish. And then the difference is becoming a scuba diver. Like you're interacting with that environment or, or even maybe as simple as you know, looking out the window on a pretty summer day or, Oh, it's really nice out there outside. And then, but you're inside looking through the, through the window and then, all of a sudden, you get outside and you're in the playground, and or and then all the whole sky opens up to you. And now you, there's a difference now, and that's the way it was for me going out to spacewalk. Except that the whole universe had opened up to me, and I didn't wasn't looking through a window anymore. I was just looking through the thin visor in front of me, and I can turn my head in any direction. And our altitude at Hubble was about 100 miles higher than the altitude at space station. So if you've seen photos from space station. We can't quite get the. We don't see the detail. We're higher. Right. We see more of the curve of our planet, and you, you can pretty much see it in its entirety. It takes up your whole field of view, but it's there, and uh, it is. It is. I just, the first time I looked at it, I, I got out of the airlock. Popped my. I was with. I was. I was my first. My first flight. My first spacewalk. So they usually don't let you go out with another rookie. It's. I had an experienced crew member with me, and in my next flight, I was the experienced guy, with the new guy. And Jim Newman, who was an experienced spacewalker, was went out, made sure the coast was clear, and hooked up our tethers, and then said, "All right, Mike, come on out." And I stuck my head out of the airlock, and he was on the bulkhead of the of the space shuttle, the forward bulkhead on a handrail, floating there, and I could see his face. He had his 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 uh, wind. His we have these cold visors when it's sunny out, but 
his was up and you can see very clearly, I could see his face very clearly. And he's just smiling at me like, check this out, man. We, we made it out here. And behind his head was Africa. And, wow. I, and I said, you know, and it was just, it was unbelievable. I said, how am I going to get any work done? Um, <laughs> yeah. How long yeah. are those spacewalks? How long do those, there are a few they're hours, planned, right? They're planned for six and a half. Uh, so you have to demonstrate that you can finish in time. Uh, and that's what they plan for uh, is six and a half hours. If things are going well, or if they're not going well, you need more time. Or if they're going well, and they can give you some extra things to do, they'll do that. Depending on how your consumables are doing, how you're... Primarily, the limiting thing for our spacewalks was was uh, was not oxygen, because we could re- recharge that, or power, but it was our CO2 output. So they would get a... a, a you only have so much in the filter to scrub out CO2, depending on your metabolic rate. Mm. So if you're doing well metabolically, meaning you're not using up too much you're not using up your you're not producing too much co2 or right am i clear on that yes absolutely because it's not what you would think but that's the thing that so if you're doing okay metabolically and 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 you can stay out there longer uh they we can go longer so all my spacewalks were longer than that one of them was really i had four spacewalks total one of them was a a little over eight hours is one of the longest ones ever wow so they'll they'll keep you out there for a while and that's the that's the time that from more or less outside so you're inside the spacesuit for uh, about a, about an hour before that, and for about another thirty minutes or so after that. So you, you're inside of that thing for quite a while. Do they have? Are that they? Thing, mo- I mean, the thing is the spacesuit. Of course. Yeah. Um, are they monitoring your your vitals? Are they? That sort of thing that we see as far yeah. as the yeah. They only do that during spacewalks, and they don't do that during the launch. They used to do that, I think, back in the. Uh, in the Apollo days, uh, they, they, they would monitor the, the biomedical, uh, uh, how the guys were doing, right? Yeah. But, but they didn't do that when, on, on, they don't do that on Space Station. We didn't do that on the space shuttle when you're inside. I, what, what they, the reason they did it during a spacewalk, because you're in your own little spaceship there, and they monitored your heart rate because I mentioned this metabolic rate. And so the way they calculate that to try to calculate your CO2 uh, production as you're breathing is they can they can get a good it's hard to, to manage co2 because mm. once a co2 sensor goes off that you have a high level of co2 it's kind of almost too late they gotta pull right? you out yeah, yeah. it's more like, all right we gotta knock it off you have a little more time but as soon as it pegs it you start detecting too much co2 in the air it's already too late it's time oh, to wow. come in. so that's not a good thing yeah absolutely. so they try to predict how that's gonna how that's going and the way they predict that is they Look at your oxygen usage, which they can read off the tank level, the tank pressure, as you're using oxygen, and also your heart rate. So that gives them an idea of how, how much CO2 you're producing. So that's why they monitor us, our biomed, during a, during a spacewalk. But they don't do it during any other phases of flight. Yeah, you mentioned uh, your spacewalks being a little bit longer than mm-hmm. anticipated. Yeah. You, had a, you had a couple incidents go down, right? Can you describe that for people when you yeah. had to improvise? Yeah, well, one of, sometimes they go, my first my first one went long for a good reason, because we were getting so much done so quickly. Pat on the back. They were like, hey, uh, you guys, uh, you got any more you know, gas in the tank? Are we going to do this now? And we're like, okay, fine. And Why don't you put another shade of well, uh, green was, on that? Yeah. yeah, it was like, it was, well, actually what it was, it was these la- these latches on the hubble, they needed these repair kits on them, and it was kind of like an extra thing. And it was kind of a fun little thing to do, and we did that. And some other little things we did. So that was like a, almost a reward. We were staying out a little later and do some more stuff. Like, okay, fine. But uh, the other times it was because we had issues and we were trying to finish. And the worst, the worst one I had, the real long one, was a mistake that I made on repairing 
uh, an instrument. We had a, we usually, up till the last servicing mission, there were five servicing missions to Hubble, and I was on the last two. So the first four of those, of which I was on that the fourth, were pretty much take something out, put a new thing in. Mm. Um, after my mission, which was on Space Shuttle Columbia, the next time Columbia went to space, Columbia didn't come back. They had uh, they had took debris on on ascent and on entry. They had a hole in the wing, and, and the friction in the atmosphere, the, the spaceship came apart, and they lost the crew and the and the spacecraft. Total you know total loss. Mm. And uh, so there was one last Hubble mission left, and we they wanted to get everything. They knew this was going to be it. There wasn't going to be any mission added. This is it. So we had to do everything we could. And there were there was one instrument that was we didn't have a replacement for. And it was a, a spectrograph that could analyze the the atmospheres of far off planets. So they really liked this capability, but it had a power supply failure. It was perfectly fine except you couldn't turn it on, so it wasn't going to do any good. And it was a short that occurred on on the power supply looked like a computer board, but it stuck inside this instrument that was sealed up to launch in space. So it had launch lock bolts, and it had a 120 pin connector at the back of it, which meant. It had to be sealed up really tight and could withstand the launch. And the access panel to even look at this thing had 111 small screws with washers and glue on the threads. So this was pretty much put together like it's never coming apart. Yeah. And uh, we devised over 100 new tools to take this thing apart. It was kind of like doing surgery. I'm not a surgeon, but that's what I felt like we were doing here. Very intricate work, lots of tools, lots of steps. But the easiest thing that day was to remove a handrail that was used to insert the instrument when it was a replacement instrument years earlier. And there was four screws to take off. Real simple, one line in the checklist. And I strip one of the screws on the lower right of this thing. And the handrail's not coming off that day. And uh, I felt terrible. They, they came up with us after we troubled, went through some troubleshooting. Some very smart young engineer in the back came up with a, an engineer. And they tested it. And it worked. And it was just for me to rip that handrail off, which seems like an easy just to pull on it, to tear it off. Um, it made perfect sense to me after they told me. I didn't think of it, and it was no, no one in the front room did because you generally wouldn't rip something like that off because you generate debris, and you could hurt me or it could hurt the telescope. But right. they did a test. They thought it was safe. They had me wrap the bottom of it with tape, and, and I was able to give it a couple yanks and then tear the thing off, and then the rest of the spacewalk went okay. But because of that, it took about an hour and a half to, to, for them to come up with that solution for us to do that. So that had us go really long, and um, we went. That was over eight hours, but we got it done. I mean, that's such a. It's a gripping story. I mean, I think we sort of dramatize it in films, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and it seems so intense. When you're in the moment, uh, does it feel that intense? Obviously, are well, you no calculating it in that way? Well, I wasn't or? so worried about getting killed. I, mean, I was. Uh, I was really worried about that. I had let everybody down, mm. and. Um, I felt I felt terrible about it, and because um, I, I felt you know I, the, I quickly went through the summation of what had happened that 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 stripped that screw and that handrail's not coming off, the 111 screws aren't coming out, the access panels not getting removed, we're not going to replace the power supply, the instrument's never going to come back to life, we'll never find out if there's life on other planets, and everyone's going to blame me. That's pretty much what went through my mind. Wow, I felt yeah. terrible about it. Because I was the guy that did this, and um, what was what was going through my mind was a couple things. One was is that I have I, I can't I can't shut down. I, I wanted to crawl into a hole, even though I was out there spacewalking. And 
A couple things I learned as an astronaut that I tried to remember. Uh, one was that it was one one saying that a, a Marine pilot, my friend C.J. Sturkow, told me one time when I messed up in a in a sim. He said, "Give yourself thirty seconds of regret, and then come back." You know, when you get mad about you when you've done something that you're really upset about, and I do this all the time, and I. Sometimes it takes me a lot longer than 30 seconds. I made a bad decision or things didn't work out and I feel badly. All right, beat yourself up for a little bit, but you have to come re-engage. The team still needs you. And um, another thing I tried to think of is that what I learned in my training that is no matter how bad things seem to appear, um, no matter how bad a situation is, uh, you can make it worse. And that, you, know, you know that was don't, it's not, you reach a point where it's not going to get any better. I can't make this any better. I've messed it up enough, but I am not going to make it any worse. Because a lot of times you make a mistake and you break something or something goes wrong. It's not the end of the world. It might seem like the end of the world, but what really kills you is the second problem or the third problem because you're trying to rush or make up for it or hide it or whatever. And then you start compounding it and it gets worse. So I was not going to make it worse. I was going to try to be an active crew member. I, I had thought I had sunk us. That there was no way we were going to recover from this. But I thought the least I could do is not make it any worse. And sure enough, they, the smart people on the ground on the control center came up with a solution. But I was horrified by what I had done, and I felt absolutely miserable about it. But I kept going, and then I was really happy at the end when it all worked out. Absolutely. And it's a good story. It's a great story, yeah. and I think it is a testament to the human ability to improvise and having a manned mission and having yeah. humans actually yeah. operate these it's, these missions versus robots. It's funny you say that. It was toward, it was toward the end of the uh, shuttle program, and I was up, for some reason, I was up at NASA headquarters, which doesn't always happen. I, they want you to do something, you go up there, it was to do a, I don't know, some PR event or something that, tweet up or something like that <laughs> and I remember I was in the administrator's office and I was sitting out there waiting you know in the waiting room kind of like you know like a dentist office an office I'm waiting in the, you know the outer office waiting and they had a bunch of newspapers there and it was a USA Today and it was right before the end of the the final of the end and it was about the space shuttle and it, it went over the history of the shuttle for 30 years and it had highs and lows and the lows were the accidents and then it said the highs and this was I'm just reading this thing and it said and it said, it said something like, on May 17th, uh, 2009, and they used my full name, Michael J. Massimino, uh, broke this handrail off, off the Hubble Space Telescope. Only a human could do that and showed the value of humans in space. And I was like, holy cow. Wow. You know, out of all the things, this is right here. And I was like, you know, what they neglected to say is a human also created that problem. But they said, you know, as Who you cares? said, we can improvise. Details, so details, I thought that was pretty. I thought that was pretty cool. But I think, they, and they said what they went on to say was, nothing showed the utility of the space shuttle and humans in space like the Hubble servicing missions. And we went on to describe our missions because just about every one of those spacewalks required some sort of uh, some sort of improvisation because we were always doing new things that we didn't plan. It was a little bit different than the space station spacewalks. It was a very delicate instrument. Um, plus, we didn't have the luxury of people hanging around there. So the space station, you know, if what I did made that mistake. If it was a space station problem, we'd probably come inside, we'd figure it out, and a, a week later we'd go out, or a month later, whatever, you go out and fix it. But we didn't have that luxury. We had to solve it then or it was never getting done. So it gave us a, a different sense of urgency, I think. So, yeah. But you're right. I think it does show how people can improvise, and having a person there is helpful. 
I'd like to welcome a new partner to this endeavor, Hiatus Tequila. Hiatus means to pause or break a sequence, which I believe is a great message. I'd always been a bourbon or whiskey guy until recently I started dabbling with tequila, especially in the summer. I met the founder of Hiatus, who is a fascinating guy and has done his due diligence in Mexico. Check them out on Instagram at Hiatus Tequila. Yeah, and having those man missions and you know after you know you lost that crew how it felt you know yeah. as part of that program as as part of these ultimate explorers people yeah. that are just you know just gung-ho i, I can't yeah. think of a better word yeah, to get out to space and yeah. nothing's going to stop you you yeah. were part of that next mission so how's yeah. it yeah yeah no we yeah so the so the hubble my first flight was in 02 and uh we were on Columbia to go to Hubble and came back with Columbia. Columbia went up the next time was STS-107 about 10 months later, and, and they didn't come back. And that, we lost our friends, but we also lost the space shuttle. And they were like, what happens now? And it's somewhat of a long story that they canceled the final Hubble mission. And then uh, after about a year and a half or so, we had a new administrator come in. And he challenged us to figure out a way to go back. And we came up with an idea for a rescue flight. And so, because going to space, space, the idea was we were going to go, the decision was made, we're going to finish building the space station with the shuttle. And then we're going to shut the shuttle down. And if you, if you have this problem again with the space, if you have a, a debris hit, we're going to inspect the vehicle, you try to fix it. And if you can't, you stay on the space station until we figure out how to get you home safely. Hubble, there's no life support. So if you have a debris hit and you can't fix it, you're stuck. So they canceled the mission. They said it was too dangerous. And it was more dangerous. It was more debris at the higher altitudes. It was. It just seemed like, no, we're not doing it anymore. And then the new administrator said, no, 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 we got to figure out a way to do this before the shuttle program ends. And we were, the idea we had was to have a rescue flight come and get us. But it was interesting. You know, you think about how you're going to react to things, and you never really know until you have to. Like, am I going to be scared? Am I going to worry about this? You know, how am I going to react? And you don't really know. You know, I've surprised myself sometimes being not the way I would have wanted to react. And sometimes, hey, I did pretty good with that. You know, it's kind of interesting how it happens. I think that's one of the joys of life surprising yourself sometimes, right? What's going to happen? And when we lost those guys, when we lost my friends, the men and women that we lost on on the Columbia accident, you know, I I don't know if I ever really wondered what's going to happen. But but when it happened, I was, it was like, this is really bad. I was very happy. I was still alive. I was really upset that my friends were killed. But it really didn't change. It really, it was. It didn't really give me any new information. It was like, I knew this was. We knew this was dangerous. Um, it's not like this was a newsflash. Hey, guess what? You could get killed doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, it was like, yeah, we knew this could happen. Um, we're not going to let this happen again. And it didn't change the way I felt about it at all. About wanting to go. In fact, in some ways, it made me want to go even more. And 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 it also I realized that. I'm probably not going to fly as many times as I thought I was. That is, this is probably, it's going to slow things down. It's going to drag things out. It's going to stop. The shuttle got a lot of people in space, and it probably meant I wasn't going to be flying five missions. And so I realized if I get another one, I'm really going to appreciate it. I really want to go at least one more time. Because that first one, not that I took it for granted, but I certainly wanted to go again and, and wanted to make sure I made the most of another mission if I ever got one. I've had the pleasure of being in a room with you a couple of times, and I, I remember you saying you, you had a friend that stayed back when you went out, and you imparted to him what it felt like to look at the earth. Oh, and I, yeah, I, I uh, love that so much. Yeah. Can, you, can you give yeah, that story Yeah, so that was my bit? first flight I think you're talking yeah. about. And uh, I was a rookie on that flight, and uh, 
there was one other rookie from my astronaut class. His name was Dwayne Carey, an Air Force uh, pilot, um, test pilot, and uh, we were good friends. We really—he's one of my better friends I've ever had, and and uh, we were good friends before, and we really bonded on that flight as the two rookies. But as a pilot, he wasn't going to be tasked with going out to spacewalk, and so he, before the flight, he came up to me and he, he said, "Look, Mass, uh, that's my nickname, right?" He goes, "Mass." I'm not going to get a chance to to spacewalk. You are. I'm, I'm never going to get a chance to spacewalk. Probably. So you got to go out there, and when you come back in, you got to tell me what it's like. And I, you know, these other guys, they're going to sugarcoat it or whatever. I don't want to hear any of that. <laughs> I want to know exactly what it's like. Don't sugarcoat it. You know, I want to know what it's like out there because I'm never going to know. He's like, all right, man. So. In the airlock, before I went out that first spacewalk, he comes up to me, he wished me luck, and he says, before we close the airlock, and he goes, I want a full report when you get out. And I go, oh, you got it, Digger. So he goes out, and, uh, and I made some different observations while I was out there about things. And um, when I got back in the airlock uh, and we repressed, sure enough, he's in my face, right? He's right <laughs> in my grill. And you have to you take a glove off first to alleviate whatever little pressure's left in the suit after you depress and then you take the helmet off. So I, my helmet's coming off, and I hand it to him, and he takes it and puts it where it's supposed to go. And he's like, before I even get out of the spacesuit, he's in my, right in my face, what was it like out there? And, uh, and I said to him, Digger, you'll never believe it. And he goes, what? And I said, the Earth is a planet. Right? And he says, he's looking at me like, what, what was going on inside of your spaceship? And I said, no, man. It's a planet. It's not what we thought it was. We're out there amongst all the chaos. And what had happened during that first spacewalk is my relationship with the Earth changed. Right. Um, like right now, I look outside here. We're, I don't, people can't see the scene, but we're right here in New York City. We're in Smile Radio, located in the Smile to Go Cafe, and we're looking out to the line that's uh, trying to get into the Broken right. Shaker uh, rooftop so, bar so the, at the these, Freehand Hotel right now. These very nice-looking people here, these young people, or waiting online to go have a fun evening at this bar. Have a few adult beverages, okay. probably. And people are running around here doing stuff. And there's a car there, and there's a bouncer checking ID. And Everyone's looking know, at their the phones. The sun is starting to get a little dark here. And, and this is what I thought the Earth was. Yeah. Right? And then I got to space, and I looked, and I realized this is not what the Earth is. We are on a spaceship, man. And... I could see the planet, and I could turn my head, and I could see that all that chaos out there, and we're zipping around, and the earth is moving, and the sun is out there, and it's not in a blue sky. It's in a black sky. You see it in a black sky, uh, and the moon is looks three-dimensional, and we are part of this cosmic dance that has been going on for a very long time, right? Many, many... I don't know how many, a couple billion years or something. What's <laughs> yeah. the, what's, what's the, this has been going on for a very a long, long time, time. Yeah. And we're really a part of that. And so I realized that it's not, we are not in this cocoon. We are not in what we think. It's not about taking the kids to a game. It is. That's what life is. Taking the kids to the school or ball game or going to the grocery store or going to work. That's how we, that's how I was engaging the earth. But what it really is, is we are on a spaceship and we are a planet amongst all the other planets and all the other stars that are out there in the universe. And that's who we truly are. And we also, by the way, I think are the most beautiful of those planets. But that's who we are. So I, my, that's why I told my buddy, man, we're on a planet. It's not what we thought it was. We're not in a cocoon, man. We're not, 
we're, we're, we, the earth is a planet. And I could see it from afar. I, I felt like I wasn't in it. I felt like I was looking at it. And so looking at our home, that's how I would describe it. I think that perspective is so important to have out there. And I think the programs like what Nat Geo is doing, I've, I've had the benefit of working with Nat Geo on a few of their sort of space-related programs mm-hmm. and events. And this one, Apollo Missions to the Moon, um, has me really excited. I got to see it at the Sun Valley Film Festival. And mm-hmm. it's just, it really takes you back to that era of exploration. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to hit that next generation, hopefully. So how do you so. feel about you know, what's out there, you know, the state of the space program, you know, the young, you know, the next, Mm -hmm. the next wave. How does it feel for you as someone who's a veteran standing outside of it? I I think it's very exciting. I think what's most exciting is that we're at this threshold of crossing over from a almost totally government-run program around the world. It's not just our government, but the governments of countries from around the world sending people to space and exploring space we're now at this opportune time where that can start to be more and more a privatization commercialization as well as governments i think there's always going to be a role for governments to explore but now i think we're going to see private enterprise getting more and more involved whether it's with tourism launching payloads and commercialization of even the space station is was announced by nasa just a couple weeks ago and um, the successes that we have seen with SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin have been very impressive. I thought there was no way that any of this was possible. Fifteen years ago when I first started talking about this and I was a, you know, a, a young astronaut looking at and listening, I'm like, there's no way they can do this. This is only the government can do this. But that's not the case. Mm. They can do it. And um, so I think it's very exciting. And for young people, I, I, I'm a, an engineering professor at Columbia and... Generally, the space-interested students gravitate and somehow into my path. And, and uh, what I find from them and what they end up doing after graduation, if they're looking for employment in the space program, sometimes it's NASA or the bigger traditional space contractors that work directly with NASA. But they're also very interested in going into these more entrepreneurial private companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic. And... Uh, and that's what I think is exciting. And, and there's lots of opportunities. Um, you know, for me, uh, I wanted to be the American astronaut like Neil Armstrong with the, uh, with the American flag on my... Helmet on there, the arm on as side. you're walking, doing exactly. the slow walk, uh, that's slow motion it, walk. That whole bit with the American flag <laughs> on my left arm and you know, flying in, in jets and doing all that. And I got to do that. And, and, but uh, but there are, there's going to be a lot more, there's going to be more opportunities, I think, other than that. I think that'll still be there for those who want to do that way. Uh, but I also think there's these opportunities in, uh, in the more entrepreneurial private sector uh, in commercial space flight. And I think that we're kind of, if we're going to look at air travel, you know, many years ago, 100 years ago, it was a new industry and it was used for military purposes and maybe some barnstorming but eventually a commercial airplane industry grew out of that and we have an airplane taking off every second going somewhere and on our planet and uh, i don't know if we'll ever have spaceships taking off every second but i hope so it's gonna trend toward that uh, yeah 
more than it has. So I think people are able to follow it closer now, now especially mm-hmm. with NASA being so good on social media, obviously, yeah. and, and Nat Geo and all these things sort of leading us into yeah. these portals. And you, Astro, Astro Mike on uh, Twitter, yeah. you're the first person to tweet from outer space, yeah, right? Yeah, that, Neil Armstrong. <laughs> yeah, first guy to tweet from space. That's me. That's yeah. so cool. And I think it's a mix of that and also the tangible. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, uh, you know, my family went to see launches at mm-hmm. Cape Canaveral and oh, I, cool. I will never forget th- yeah. you know, being outside of that blast range and just seeing it go yeah. up and how beautiful it was. I mean, did you watch those launches too? And has it feel, I mean, I, I kind of want to end I, on. As a, as a kid, we never went anywhere. Yeah. We went to the Bronx. That was like a trip. <laughs> You know, in Long Island, we never yeah. went to Brooklyn was like, oh, this magic land we're going to. And we didn't we didn't go anywhere. So I never went on an airplane till I was 18. I never I saw things on television. And so, but I think that shows the power of television and maybe a podcast as well. And maybe someone will hear this and hopefully get interested in something. You know, who knows? But um, but I think that's the power of even of social media. And I think you're right. I think that now that NASA has a huge following and people can follow along. We have the internet now, and you can watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon anytime you want. When I was a kid, I saw it on television once, and I don't know when it was that I saw it again. Maybe it replayed a couple times after that, of course, but you know, certainly probably a few months after that, we didn't see it very much anymore until like now I can watch it on my phone while we're talking, right? But, right. Um, so we have that. Uh, and I was also inspired in the later, later in life by a movie, by the right stuff. So um, I think that that's the power of these things, and that... Of, of what these mediums can do. And maybe social media, maybe podcasts now fall into that as well. These are newer things. But hopefully they can. Um, and I think that that's good enough. You know, I, there's one guy, we were, we were always encouraged to go visit schools to try to inspire kids. And one of my, one of my friends said one time, I don't know, because uh, I was inspired by Neil Armstrong, but he didn't walk in my classroom. He walked on the moon. We should be walking on the moon. I'm like, okay, that's a good point. But we're not walking on the moon anytime soon. So, you know, we have to figure out other ways to, to get to people. And I think you know, that's hopefully a, a role that uh, social media and television film and what you're doing does. Yeah, I want to end on, I, uh, like I said, I was there watching those launches. Mm-hmm. And I, if I could just hear what it felt like mm-hmm. now that I'm sitting with somebody who actually yeah. felt that. What were you thinking? Were you humming a tune? Were you thinking I'm leaving Earth right while now? What was going on through? the launch pad, or while you're while you're actually launching? Once, off? once it once it lights, yeah, yeah. So once, once the, it lights, once that's a cool way. Once to say it, it lights, because you're really not going anywhere until a rocket lights, and then you're going somewhere. <laughs> it might not be where you want to go as a result of something, but it was okay. Um, you know, you move very abruptly, and uh, it's a surreal experience. I think leading up to that, but uh, the the. The shuttle had a combination of liquid-fueled rockets and solid rockets, and the solid rockets like sticks of dynamite, and they burn a little rough, so there was a lot of shaking going on, and then G-forces build up toward the end of the launch. And but overall, the the sensation that I had um, was the, the I was impressed by the power and the speed of of what I, was underneath me, and I, I and I was like, at first my very my first launch I was like. Something's wrong, you know. We're, this is at a, you know, this is just too much shaking. But my crewmates on to the side of me. I was in the middle of these two guys, and and they were uh, they were calm about it and high five. And so like, well, they're not worried about getting killed, and they've done it before, so maybe this is normal. And uh, it 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 there was a, a part there um, where I felt the power of this machine is so awesome that all of our training and a lot of our training is to counteract problems that hopefully never happened. And I had the sense that either this is going to work or it's not. 
Either the rocket's going to go where it's supposed to and behave, or it's not. And if it does, we're okay. And the odds are in our favor that it'll probably be okay. But if it decides that it's not going to behave, we have nothing to do about it. We, I felt like a beast had grabbed me and was going to do with me as it wanted to. And there was nothing I could, I could say about it. And um, there were these placards right above my head that with our emergency procedures in case we encountered an issue and had to bail out or get out of the spaceship. And I, I said to myself, all that training and all this practice for that stuff, um, if we ever need it, we're not going to be able to do it anyway. And all this is is something for me to read while I die. This is reading material. And that was kind of the way I felt it was at the mercy of this spaceship. Um, and uh, it, is, it is amazing we can do these things. It really is. And, um, and then you, you get to where you're supposed to be, and the engine's cut, and you're weightless. And Beautiful. Everything gets light and peaceful. Light meaning you feel yourself get lighter. You're still strapped in, but you rise up in the, in the harness. And uh, um, I took my helmet off. I saw Tom Hanks do this on Apollo 13, so I wanted to do it. I put it right in front of me and let go, and there it was floating in front of me. That's beautiful. Thanks so much for that, Mike. Thanks for keeping people uh, looking up to the stars, and I appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or a suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels. Conversations were recorded at Smile Radio, located in Smile to Go at the Freehand Hotel.